Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Climate change is no longer theoretical. It's here. Stochastic events such as hurricanes and floods have increased in both frequency and intensity with disastrous impact on life, infrastructure and agriculture. As the world warms, we'll face a carbon feedback loop, including from loss of carbon sequestration by warming oceans and forest fires turning carbon sinks into net emitters. We're facing an existential crisis that calls for radical, structural and systemic change to decarbonize. Fossil fuel companies, which spent millions to see doubt about the causes and effects of anthropogenic climate change, have adapted and adopted more surreptitious methods as climate change denial becomes increasingly difficult to argue. In his recent book, The New Climate War, Dr. Michael Mann astutely deconstructs the discourse of pessimism, apathy, deception, deflection, and division that are the new tools of subterfuge. By mendaciously promoting the supposed inevitability of climate catastrophe, the industry seeks to undermine our agency. By promoting individual accountability, it seeks to deflect and divert from needed systemic and structural change. The fossil fuel industry has also jumped on the greenwashing bandwagon with claims of net zero, climate neutral and carbon neutral, including in marketing barrels of oil. This is another tactic of diversion and deflection as carbon offset accounting is likely spurious and at best dubious of companies failing to account for adequate baselines, failing to address emissions throughout their entire value chain and failing to account for additionality or that the emissions would not have occurred but for the offset or even the durability of the offset. Worse, the more we focus on offsetting, the less we focus on reduction. The fossil fuel industry has also increasingly utilized astroturfing to foster division between different social groups to undermine a climate coalition that would bring systemic and structural decarbonization. We must not be taken in by this hypocrisy, myopy and internecine conflicts. In his upcoming book, Our Fragile Moment, Dr. Michael Mann looks at the narrow variability in which humans can survive and thrive on our planet and the lessons we can learn from the paleoclimate record, including that climate catastrophe is not inevitable. We can thrive if we reduce emissions now. A crisis is also an opportunity and the best way to decarbonize is to move from our extractive, exploitative, linear and waste-laden economy to a circular economy focused on repair, reuse, refurbishment and recycling. I recently spoke with Dr. Michael Mann, climatologist, geophysicist and professor of earth and environmental science at the University of Pennsylvania and director of its Center for Science, Sustainability and Media on the new subterfuge tactics of the fossil fuel industry and more. So welcome to Gravity, Mike. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So the fossil fuel industry has um, tried to see doubt for decades uh, about climate change and its existence. And one of the ways it has done this is to attack climate scientists, um, including yourself. And um, you're known for probably the most controversial graph in science and the most exact, the hockey stick graph, which the IPCC used in its third assessment. And so if you could just please tell our audience about how the fossil fuel industry has attacked you personally for climate science. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, they, they've attacked me so often, I barely even notice anymore. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it's sorry, it's stealing a line from the Blues Brothers. But, um, you know, uh, 
when we published the hockey stick uh, back uh, graph, the original version back in 1998 on Earth Day, uh, April 22nd, 1998, and then a, a follow-up study the next year in 1999 that extended it back a, a thousand years, it did become this sort of icon in the climate change uh, debate because um, it told a simple story. You didn't need to understand the complicated physics of Earth's climate system to understand what this graph was telling us, that there's this unprecedented change right taking place uh today and you know probably has to do with us um at times with the industrial revolution and the increase in carbon pollution from fossil fuel burning and so it became sort of a threat to the powerful vested interests uh, the fossil fuel industry and various conservative groups and uh, media outlets that sort of advocate on their behalf and so i did find myself at the center of all of these uh, attacks concerted uh, attacks aimed at discrediting uh, the hockey stick, uh, often by trying to discredit me personally. But what I would say is that I'm thankful for those attacks because it sort of thrust me into the public sphere um, and into the center of the public discourse, which ultimately has given me an opportunity now to inform the, you know, the larger conversation about the defining challenge of our time, the climate crisis. And so I feel privileged to be in that position. And I'm not sure I would be if it weren't for um, my detractors and their efforts to uh, discredit uh, the hockey stick. Fortunately, you know, dozens of subsequent studies have not only reaffirmed our findings, but have extended them back further. In fact, not only is the recent warming, uh, you know, unprecedented in a thousand years, as we, you know, concluded 25 years ago, but the latest studies suggest that um, the the actually this year the, the 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 record warmth that we saw this summer may well have been the warmest days this planet has seen in over a hundred thousand years, and so it sort of drives home the fact that we are engaged in this unprecedented uh, crisis, and we saw it play out so profoundly this summer, it's still playing out, right, in the form of the wildfires and floods and heat waves and storms. This is it. This is the climate crisis. It's no longer subtle as it was 25 years ago when we first published the hockey stick. It's in our face. Right. It's palpable, right? It's just, it's out the window. You um, so well analyze in the new climate war that it is shifting and it's gone from uh, rejecting that there is any climate change to currently using subterfuge, <laughs> subterfuge tactics. Um, and you talk about various and opposing tactics. Um, let's start with the doomsayers. How does selling doom and gloom and disengagement play right into the hands of the fossil fuel companies? Yeah, so, you know, um, it's become impossible for them to deny climate change is happening, just as we said, because it's in our face. We all see it. Um, and so they have turned to these other tactics, uh, you know, because they don't care why we fail to act. They just want us to fail to act. And whether it's because of denial that the problem exists or denial that we can do anything about it anymore. It potentially leads us, as you said, down that path of disengagement. And so we have seen bad actors, fossil fuel uh, companies, um, the front groups that uh, promote them, petrostates like Russia and Saudi Arabia who have weaponized social media for climate denial and, and delay. Um, we've uh, seen them actually weaponize doomism 
Um, and, you know, uh, what's ironic here is that they're trying to take basically folks who would most likely be on the front lines demanding action, right? So it's one thing to sort of feed the flames of sort of conservative ideology and denial. But here, the, you know, polluters and their enablers have been going after not sort of the deniers, but the alarmed. And, 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 and in a sense, trying to disable them by convincing them there's nothing that can be done that and so it's been remarkable to me to watch that sort of messaging which is false um, and my latest book my forthcoming book our fragile moment is really about the lessons we can take from the billions of years of earth history that tell us that that's false that it, it's not too late uh, for us to prevent catastrophic warming that's what the data say that's what the science says but if they convince us if they can convince us it is then again, it, it, it takes those who would be on the front lines and moves them to the sidelines. And that's what's so pernicious about the weaponization of doomism. Yeah, I mean, apathy and atrophy just uh, dwindle any climate alliance and any mitigation and adaptation tactics. We just give up. Yep. And so we have to stay positive. And it's, I, I want to get to um, the theories in your upcoming book a bit later. And it's so great that we still can survive. But um, the question yeah, that I have... Yeah, it would be here if we couldn't. You know, <laughs> yeah. One pack in my bags if it was all over. That's what the science told me. But it, that's not what the science tells us. And so the other deflection tactic, it seems, uh, in climate discourse right now is to deflect from systemic and structural shifts, which seem to be quite necessary, to simply virtue signaling and these shouting matches over individual responsibility. So how does yeah. this uh, focus on individual responsibility detract and divert from corporate accountability? Yeah, thanks for that question. And again, it's so pernicious, right? Because the people who are the target of that, that messaging are actually good people who are who want to do the right thing who you know want to do right by us and other living things and the planet and you know and the irony here is of course we should all engage in those individual choices lifestyle choices and behaviors that are good for the environment um, it's good for us um, it you know, in many cases, the actions that we would take, they actually save us money um, or they make us healthier, bicycling uh, rather than, you know, driving to work. Um, they uh, make us feel better about ourselves. They set a good example for other people. It's win-win. We should, of course, do all those things. No question about it. The problem is when that is sort of framed as an alternative uh -huh. to the systemic actions that are necessary. And, you know, this deflection um, we have seen deflection campaigns for decades by bad corporate actors who wanted to fight regulations that would hurt their profits. We saw it with the beverage industry and the infamous Crying Indian uh, commercial from the early 1970s, which was an effort to convince us that we didn't need bottle bills, we didn't need recycling um, or, you know, the, the avoidance of single-use plastics. Um, all we needed was you know people to be better stewards of the environment and to pick up the bottle and can litter. Um, it was a very cynical ploy to deflect our attention from the needed systemic actions 
to, that, that really had the potential to solve the problem, but would have hurt the bottom line, the profits of the bottling, uh, the, the beverage industry, to shift attention to us, to make it all about us. And, you know, as a result of that, at least in part, we have a, one of the other great environmental crises of our time, the global plastic pollution crisis. We can thank the beverage industry, the Crying Indian uh, commercial, which you know was framed as a public service um, advertisement, a PSA, but right. it turns out it was actually hatched on Madison Avenue by Coca-Cola and Anheuser-Busch, and even some environmental groups got conned into signing on, at least early on. Um, fool me once. Well, some of them have been conned again. Um, yeah. <laughs> because uh, the, the fossil fuel industry is doing exactly the same thing now with, oh, we just need to make it about individual carbon footprint. You just need to decrease your individual carbon footprint um, when 70 percent, you know, they want us so focused on our individual footprint that we neglect the overwhelming footprint of the fossil fuel industry. 70% of carbon emissions comes from just 100 uh, companies and corporations. Um, and we, in our, we are constrained in our lifestyles. As long as energy providers are not giving us the option of renewable energy, uh, providing only coal and natural gas, um, as long as the infrastructure remains unfavorable for right. a clean energy transition because of the actions of polluters, we don't even have the options, at least, to, uh, at least uh, convenient options for decarbonizing our own lifestyle. So, yeah, we should all do everything we can to minimize our environmental footprint, but don't let that be a, um, a, a um, you know, a, a free pass. We can't allow that to become a free pass to polluters without the systemic changes, regulations, pricing carbon, incentivizing renewable energy, uh, creating clean energy infrastructure, stopping new fossil fuel projects from proceeding. Without those things that can't be done by us as individuals, only our governments can do that. Without that, there's no way that we can achieve the reductions in carbon emissions that are necessary. Yeah, I agree. And now you can see if the fossil fuel companies have ads against climate scientists because they're taking a plane to an international conference on climate. Right. <laughs> um, right. Oh, they yeah. have something a, to gain from that. That's another tactic in, in the book. It's uh, hypocrisy shaming, right? Because it's a, it's a, double, it's a double whammy. First yeah. of all, it's deflecting attention to individual behavior, which is the frame that they want. Yeah. And the bonus is you can try to discredit you know, yeah. climate advocates like Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore by cynically, you know, making it about them and 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 the system within we are currently trapped. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, Leo DiCaprio, Al Gore, both of them I, I know personally. I know that they're they have good hearts um, and good intentions, um, and they are doing far more good with the advocacy that they are doing and changing. You know. And contributing to a better understanding of the climate crisis, they're doing far more good than they are doing harm by traveling within the 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 travel infrastructure that exists today, within which we're all currently sort of stuck. Um, I would just note that uh, um, Leo DiCaprio's um, Academy Award acceptance speech drew more attention on social media for climate change than any other moment in human history. 
So they're mm. using their platform for good, and that's what polluters don't like, and that's why they're the first ones who are targeted with these cynical hypocrisy accusations. Yeah, <laughs> while well, they burn up the world. Oh, you took a plane yeah. across the world. You could have taken a sailboat. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. So you discuss another very pertinent tactic, and that is the historic uh, way that any empire rules or any powerful interest, and that is divide and conquer. And the fossil fuel industry is trying to cleave a climate coalition by utilizing pressing and pertinent social problems of gender, sexual, racial, economic inequities um, to prevent an uh, an alliance that would fortify political will and um, lead to structural change. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And, and, and more than any other uh, of the other tactics uh, that I outlined, that's the one t- that to me is the most disturbing. It's, it's the most cynical, hmm. trying to get us to fight with each other, um, yeah. as you say, divide and conquer. Uh, and, you know, there's some amazing examples of that. For example, there was a campaign um, that was aimed at uh, convincing uh, sort of urban communities, uh, mostly minority urban communities like in Los Angeles, that they were the ones who were going to be harmed um, by uh, climate policies. Uh, And so trying to convince them that climate action was gonna hurt them as a community. Um, And uh, it was funded by Chevron. (laughs) It was a completely cynical effort, once again, to like cleave the movement, especially climate justice, to try to um, get you know, advocates um, who are driven by, uh, you know, considerations of climate justice to convince them that climate policies will be bad for them. Um, Another example of that is the effort to convince sort of progressives um, that a carbon tax uh, would hurt low-income communities and frontline communities um, when, in fact, it depends entirely on how you structure the, the carbon tax. If the revenue you take in is returned preferentially to those frontline communities, which is the way Australia did it, or the way that Canada is doing it, it actually becomes progressive policy. Yeah. It's not progressive. Um, but they don't want you to know that. They just want to cynically, the, the, the polluters who are promoting this sort of framing, they want to cynically exploit, you know, like you said, issues of, of gender, race, cultural identity, uh, what have you, um, to, to cleave the climate movement, to get us fighting with each other so yep. that we don't represent a united sort of uh, force demanding action. And it seems another tactic that they have is trying to pretend that they're our climate saviors. Yeah. Um, and it seems that they're jumping on this carbon offset bandwagon. Yep. So terms yep. like carbon neutral, net zero, climate neutral, I, I seem to think that they're so amethyst and nebulous that they're probably inherently uh, deceptive. And I know the FTC is currently looking at those phrases, but I'm wondering, is the carbon offset practices, um, are they helpful or are they backtracking? Because they seem to be heavily criticized by peer-reviewed papers, and I'm just wondering what KPIs we should be looking at if they are helpful. Yeah, so thanks, this is a great question. A gratuitous plug, uh, the center that I direct uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media, one of our uh, um, research uh, scholars, uh, Joe Rome, who actually founded uh, the website Climate Progress, was the first sort of widely um, 
known uh, climate blog back, you know, in the 2000s. Um, and uh, he's now a, 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 um, a, a research uh, scholar uh, at, at Penn uh, working with our center. And if you go to our webpage, Penn Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media, and you go uh, to um, research and reports, you'll find a link to a white paper that he did actually a few weeks ago, his first contribution as a, as a scholar in our center. And he goes through all that. He goes through all of the, you know, the dubious accounting and the, the double counting um, and all of the ways in which carbon uh, capture and offsets um, and, and, and permits um, have been hijacked mm -hmm. by the fossil fuel industry as a sort of smoke and mirrors that allows them to claim, you know, greenwash, we call it, claim that they are taking action when in fact uh, they are not, um, they're doing the opposite. And one of the fundamental problems here has to do with the difference between the carbon that we are mining as fossil fuels and right. burning and putting into the atmosphere, that's, that's fossil carbon, that's carbon that's been safely buried uh, underneath the surface of the planet in many cases for hundreds of millions of years. Okay, so that is long-term carbon. And you can't offset that by saying, oh, well, I'll plant some trees. Because <laughs> all those trees are really doing is recycling carbon. Mm. Um, they're taking it out of the atmosphere um, when they, uh, you know, uh, when, when they photosynthesize, uh, but they give it back to the atmosphere, some of it, when they respire and when they die and their, uh, you know, their leaves fall and basically that carbon makes it back into the atmosphere uh, pretty quickly. The, the trees are only holding, they're storing that carbon <laughs> only for the lifetime of that tree. So it's maybe mm. 10, 20 in the best case scenario, you know, 100 years uh, time scale. So you're taking, it sounds like a, a, a Joni Mitchell song, uh, billions of years carbon <laughs> <laughs> and um, millions of years carbon uh, and you're putting it back into the atmosphere and with, you know, um, reforestation, reforestation, at best you're talking tens of years carbon. So it's no, yeah. it's no replacement for the carbon that was buried safely for the long term. And we're seeing just how dangerous that sort of approach is because what happens to that carbon in those trees when you get massive forest fires like we're seeing right now in right. North America, it's tragically in Hawaii, um, in, uh, in uh, Australia when I was there for the black summer. In fact, mm -hmm. in that summer, Australia put more carbon into the atmosphere from those wildfires than from all the fossil fuel burning that they had done that year. Uh, something similar is going to be true here in North America now because of these massive wildfires we've seen this summer. And so you can easily lose all of that carbon back to the atmosphere that you thought you were gonna store because of climate change itself. So it's a really dangerous gam gambit. It's a cynical license to pollute and that's yeah. the way that fossil fuel companies are using it. They're using it as a smoke and mirrors that allows them to claim that they're taking action while they're continuing to tap that long-term carbon that was safely buried and put it back into the atmosphere where it will be for tens, hundreds, thousands of years now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 
So historically, the left has cannibalized itself um, in the sense that we can't seem to just get together. We, <laughs> we um, idealists want to push for massive reforms and not take graduated steps. Yeah. And uh, the fossil fuel companies last year, they this played right into their hands because they tried to cleave division over the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so how yep. does this all or nothing mentality work within the climate movement against meaningful reform? Yeah, it's 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 dangerous. I think um, the notion, you know, that the the perfect is the enemy of the good, right? Um, yeah. And that's what we've seen here. And, you know, and where it really is troubling when you'll hear, you know, some environmental progressives say, oh, look, you know, it was such a flawed bill. Um, you know, they're all the same. Back to that. The Democrats, the Republicans, it doesn't matter. Neither of them are willing to do anything. Look, you know, at the, all the flaws in the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, all right. What's going on here? We've got a 50-50 Senate. We've actually lost the House, but fortunately, the, that legislation was passed before Republicans took over the House of Representatives. But we've got a we're now 51-49, but at the time it was a 50-50 Senate. And um, that meant that one coal state Democrat, Joe Manchin, had a veto, basically, on what climate policy could pass Congress. And he used that, frankly, to sort of water down the original provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. But there, there was enough that was left intact that it was by far the most aggressive and meaningful climate legislation that we've passed. And if it's implemented, and that's a big if because conservative courts are going to try to block it now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, House Republicans are going to do everything they can. Republicans are going to do everything they can to throw monkey wrenches into the gears no matter what we do. And that's the only way to solve the problem is by people coming out and voting in mass numbers for climate advocates and voting out climate deniers and delayers and rubber stamps for the fossil fuel industry. Because as long as we don't get that sort of turnout, we get a split Congress. We get a, a Supreme Court that's stacked now with conservative judges and justices. Um, those are the obstacles yeah. to getting more aggressive climate legislation. So the antidote is it's it does come down down to individual behavior in a sense, comes down to us participating in a collective effort, collective action, in it voting. Um, you know, we get the politicians that we vote for. It's not the only way we can use our voice. We can put pressure on policymakers in many ways, um, and just making climate part of our daily conversation is an important part of that. So we have a voice, we need to use it. We've got a vote, we need to use it. That's the only way that we get more climate legislation, more aggressive climate legislation. But don't let the enemy be the perfect of the good. Um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act um, gets us part of the way down the path. That's real progress. What we need is more progress, and what we need is people to turn out in droves to make sure that we get even larger majorities in our government for climate action. I vehemently agree. But the one thing that I am concerned about is we need to radically and rapidly reduce carbon, as you have said 
for decades, as we've said for decades. But rather than focusing on a circular economy where we refurbish and repurpose and recycle, we seem to be heading into an energy transition that is focused on extraction and also perpetuating historic injustices. And most of yeah. the extraction is in the global south, so that is this new form of green colonialism. We have children in the DRC mining for our cobalt. Um, yeah. in destroying the local environment there. Also, the uh, lithium mines, or, or what we're, uh, where we're about to mine for lithium in the United States, because of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the main slated mines are within 35 miles of indigenous territory. So it seems that yeah. we're, um, again, occupying Native American land. So what is the third way? Because there's so much money to be made in the market for rare earths and earths, billions, and um, so much misery. So how do we transition away from fossil fuels without perpetuating historic injustices? Yeah, it's a a great question. I mean, that is the question, you know, um, because, uh, you know, we framed the discussion so far, mostly in terms of climate action. Climate is one component of environmental sustainability, but it's not the only component of environmental sustainability. We, there are all of these sort of these environmental limits um, that, that we're coming up against, uh, deforestation um, and habitat destruction, air and water pollution, overfishing. Um, there, there, there's a, you know, a dozen or more um, basic, you know, in separate challenges toward you know environmental sustainability that we have on our hands right now uh, climate is one with the short fuse so cl- climate's one we, we've got to act now there's no going back um, if we don't uh, you can make that argument in other areas as well but the reality is we've got to make that transition now we've got to transition off fossil fuels now within the system that exists and so i've argued you know we've got to work with the system that exists now to accomplish that while also working as you're alluding to to changing that system for the better because ultimately we need to find a way to live sustainably on this planet and climate isn't the only challenge Uh, any sort of extraction resource um, demanding path of um, future development is going to come up against basic planetary limits. It's a finite planet with finite resources. There's no way around that. We cannot continue to extract resources forever. There are consequences of all of our, our actions. So we've, we've got to work towards another system and ultimately, it's going to have to be a system that doesn't reward simple, you know, financial uh, profits, economic mm-hmm. profits, without internalizing the cost of many of these actions when it comes to environmental destruction, when it comes to our water, our air, our land, living things, ecosystems. We've got to find that third, better way. We've got to get there. Um, Along the way, we're going to also have to try to solve some of the most urgent problems within the system that exists, like I said, while working to change that system at the same time. I think that's, we've got to keep those two things in our head at the same time. So the IPCC 
uh, recently published their synthesis report, um, which is pretty grim. You know, we're not off the we're at the precipice, but we're not off the cliff yet, right? Um, but since then, um, numerous fossil fuel extraction projects have been greenlit, including Willow. That's quite disappointing. So I'm wondering how these projects might measurably affect the conclusion of the most recent report. Yeah. So I mean. You know, the commitments, there is this sort of tension between the commitments that the legislation that uh, Joe Biden signed into law, the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, that if implemented fully and on time will achieve, you know, maybe a 40 percent reduction in carbon emissions over the next decade, that we need more. You know, don't get me wrong. We probably in the industrial world, we need 60 or more percent reduction to balance the smaller reductions we're likely to see in still emerging economies so that we get that overall average of a 50 percent reduction in carbon emissions globally over the next decade. The industrial countries have to do more because okay. of the legacy that we have. Right. Mm -hmm. And so don't compare that 40 to 50. Compare that 40 to 60. 60 is really what our obligation should be. So it clearly doesn't get, you know, go far enough. It doesn't go far enough in part because in order to get sign on from Joe Manchin, uh, for example, they needed to strip away a lot of the stick. There was carrot uh. for renewable energy and there was stick for fossil fuel energy. And in negotiating the passage of that bill, uh, you know, Biden and congressional Democrats had to sacrifice some of the the carrot, some of the punitive actions, um, you know, the, uh, the 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 that you know th that would have um, limited continued fossil fuel extraction, for example. And at the same time, you have things like the Willow Project, which seemed to stand to, in contradiction to the commitment made by Biden and everyone else. The you know no less conservative. Uh, organization than the world um, uh, the, the, the uh, World Monetary Organization uh, has come out and said that um, there can be no new additional fossil fuel infrastructure if we are to meet those targets that we've agreed upon. Yeah. And so it's now with the Willow Project, the problem is um, that it had been approved basically before Biden administration and the Biden administration could challenge it. Um, they will lose given the current makeup of our of our courts. Mm. And so it comes back. There's then this longer term and we've progressives have taken their eye off the ball because conservatives have been playing the long game. They've been playing the long game with the Supreme Court. And right now they have the upper hand yeah. um, in, in that long game. And it's going to take us time uh, to, to undo that damage. Uh, they've been extremely um, strategic. And, and so now we have these obstacles. The executive branch can try to do certain things, but the court has been limiting uh, what, you know, the Biden administration can do. And the Willow Project is one example. They could have fought it. And a lot of us would have liked to have at least seen them put up that fight, which they didn't really do. And that's that's a criticism that I think can be certainly leveled against them, at least yeah. put up the fight, which they didn't do. But they probably would have lost that fight. And the only way we win that fight in the long term, again, is by restoring balance to the Supreme Court. And that's a long term process. That's not just Democrats turning out in this next election or 
pro-climate, climate-forward uh, voters, I'll say. I don't want to get too explicitly partisan. Yeah. Uh, I think we know basically who the, you know, who the two parties are, where they stand on this issue, um, especially after last night's debate oh, where, yeah. you know, every Republican, no Republican raised their hand um, in that debate to say that they even accept that humans are warming the planet. So it, it has become a, a political partisan issue. It is one party that's standing in the way. And, you know, Republicans of conscious, conscience, independents, and Democrats have to turn out in big numbers, not just in this next election, but in the next several elections, so we can start to restore some of the balance to the judiciary, which will in turn allow the executive and Congress to move forward with more aggressive action. So your new book is coming out, um, Preserving Our Fragile Moment. Um, I think it's out for pre-order right now. And you examine in that book the history of the world's climate through its more dramatic episodes. And you discuss there's a very narrow margin of variability in which we can exist and one that's uh, rapidly reducing right now. But there is still hope. Right, Mike? There's still hope. That's, that's exactly right. That is the, the overriding message of the book, and it's, and it's derived from the evidence. This isn't just me being Pollyanna. It isn't me, <laughs> you know, uh, the critics love to uh, call some of us uh, the, the claim that this is hopium, <laughs> <laughs> that we're just offering up this sort of um, false promise uh, of survivability. Um, no, these are the lessons from Earth history. Uh, and I was motivated to write this book for two reasons. Um, the first is this is sort of my scientific bread and butter. This is where I started in the science of paleoclimate and documenting what happened in the past and how that informs our understanding of the climate today. And I had never really written that book, that book which really tackles that larger question. What is the, the full wealth of information that we have from four billion years plus of existence of, of this planet? Um, what, what are the lessons that that really offers us? Um, particularly when it comes to some of the scenarios that climate doomers, those who say it's too late, there's nothing we can do, we should just accept our fate, we're all gonna die. Um, a convenient message, by the way. Uh, yeah, for, for the fossil fuels. fuel industry, no, yeah. Say that. <laughs> and again, a lot of the individuals who have become part of that, they're not bad people, they're, you know, they, they are victims of a bad faith effort to convince them yeah. that it is too late by bad actors. Um, and uh, and one of the things that you often see is um, you would see doomers point to some past climate episodes, like what's known as the great dying 250 million years ago, <laughs> um, the boundary between um, the uh, Permian, the end of the Permian, and the beginning of the, uh, the Triassic um, period. So at that boundary, the boundary is really defined by a climate event. There was fairly substantial warming. Um, there were other changes in Earth's climate system that were adverse for life uh, and led to the largest extinction in the history of our planet. 90% of all species died off in the oceans um, and that has to do with a number. It wasn't just warming, they became acidified. So you had ocean warming, you had ocean acidification. You probably had a global stink bomb, um, which uh, is uh, sulfur. Basically, uh, because of the changes in ocean chemistry, huge amounts of sulfur um, that uh, were released and literally created like a stink bomb in the ocean that killed off, that snuffed out uh, much of the life. Yet we made it through that. 
Um, and so people will point to that sort of the great dying, the greatest extinction in Earth history. Other episodes like uh, the, what's known as the PETM, uh, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, it happened about 56 million years ago. 10 million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs, there was a fairly um, abrupt warming, abrupt on geological time scales. I mean right. abrupt, I mean tens of thousands of years. We're warming the planet over tens of years you know, a thousand times faster than that event. Uh, right. But on geological timescales, that was a rapid warming event. And, and there were there were species extinctions associated with it. So you see the doomers point to that and say, look, what happened was there was huge amounts of methane from the permafrost that was released into the atmosphere, runaway warming. And it's what's happening now because we're seeing runaway warming because the Arctic permafrost is melting and there's nothing we can do about it. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. The science doesn't say that. And it's a misrepresentation of the science that's frankly as egregious as the misrepresentations we see by climate change deniers <laughs> trying to discredit climate science. Here the doomers are misrepresenting the science to, to sort of support this narrative of, of doom for whatever reason. And I, I said, I got I to gotta actually look, I got to study those episodes and the other episodes, I'm going to spend a year basically digging into the peer-reviewed literature. And as a scientist in this field, I'm able to navigate that literature pretty well and figure out what is the state of understanding, for example, about the role that methane, w was this really a runaway methane-driven uh, event? And it turns out in neither case was that true. The main hmm. contributor, guess what it was? Carbon dioxide. Like the carbon dioxide that we are producing today from the burning of fossil fuels. And so if anything, when you really look at what happened in those episodes where methane feedbacks were probably a minor player, they're not negligible. They're not zero. They, they do increase the amount of warming. And it's something that's included in our models that we recognize and, and, and have to pay attention to. But the main driver it was CO2, just like today, the main driver is CO2. And if anything, these episodes really tell us it's all about the CO2. It's all today about the burning of fossil fuels. And when we look at that collective evidence from 4 billion years of Earth history, what it tells us to answer your original question, yes, we, um, we're already seeing devastating climate consequences. And there's no way we avoid that entirely because it's already happening. We're already seeing dangerous climate impacts. We're already seeing just these last couple of weeks, we have seen climate change driven human mortality. We're seeing it now. And it will get worse and worse and worse if we continue with business as usual. But what that Palu climate record also tells us is we do have that margin of safety. There is sort of a, a margin of error if we get off fossil fuels, if we do what the science is telling us we need to do, get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible, prevent warming of more than three degrees Fahrenheit, which is still possible to do if we act, because beyond that, things start to get worse. Then, you know, the Greenland ice sheet is in play and we're starting to think about massive sea level rise. We get much beyond that amount of warming and larger and larger parts of the world do become unlivably hot in the summer and we've already seen some semblance of that this summer that's starting to happen so yes there is a dystopian scenario if we fail to act but if we do act 
we can still preserve, to come back to the title of the book, this fragile moment. And to preserve this fragile moment, how important is it in this fragile time to communicate the science to the general public? I think it's important. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the way I see it, the, you know, the deniers and delayers have sort of exploited uh, a lack of understanding, not just in the specifics of climate science, but sort of the process of scientific discovery, why it is that we should trust scientists. And my uh, good friend Naomi Oreskes um, of Harvard recently wrote a book on why we should trust scientists. And I highly encourage people to read that. Um, there are good reasons uh, to do that. Um, and so I think we have to both educate the public about the science, but more than that, about the process, about why it is that we should trust what the science has to say, because otherwise the other side can come along and very quickly replace the scientific understanding that we've tried to provide. If it ha has a shallow foundation, they can fairly quickly replace it with an entirely fictitious mm. uh, narrative that seems compelling, but, but falls apart if you scratch beneath the surface. So we have to provide a little bit of a foundation so that that scientific understanding is sticky, so that it isn't easily displaced by the misleading, uh, cynical uh, talking points of the polluters and, and those promoting their narrative. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mike. I really appreciate it and your just such pertinent insight. Thank you. No, thank you. It was, it was a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing it go live. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.